0: Hi folks, this is Jack Spierka with another edition of the Survival Podcast. This is always one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life if times get tough or even if they don't. Today is October the 7th, 2014. This is episode 1443 of the Survival Podcast. And uh, I've got a good one for you today. Jeff Yago, who has been on the show with us before, is back to talk about current vulnerabilities in the electrical grid and preparing for power outages. Uh, Battery banks, generators, solar, the whole nine yards. We'll have him on in just a minute. Let's go ahead and take care of our sponsors first. Sponsor of the day number one today: Jeff the Berkey Guy Gleason. What are you going to get from the Berkey Guy? It might shock you to learn that the Berkey Guy has Berkey water filtration systems. What he does, and he's really the guy to get your Berkey from. Why are you going to be the guy that got your Berkey from the guy that's not the Berkey Guy when you could have got it from the Berkey Guy? Don't do that. Seriously, Jeff is a maniac at customer service. He's been a longtime supporter of the show. I guess going on five years now of being a sponsor of the Survival Podcast, he is one of the biggest dealers for Berkey in the world. That means he can get you great pricing to go along with his maniac-like customer service. He's got a lot of other really cool stuff for your prepping needs as well at directive21.com. That is directive21.com is his website. There will be a link in the show notes, as always, to Jeff. The Berkey guy, Gleason, who also gives you guys discounts if you're members of the MSB. Next up today, Fortress Defense Consultants Frank Sharp Jr. will help you complete that linchpin of gun operator efficiency. It works this way. You want to be an operator of a firearm, you've got to have a good, reliable firearm. No gun, no gun operator. Got it? Number 2 got to have good quality ammunition. Gun, no ammo, overpriced club. But the linchpin, the thing that actually makes them work together, that actually needs work, is you, the operator. So you can buy a quality gun, period. Just a good gun, and it's a good gun. You can buy quality ammo, and it's good ammo. You are the working mechanism in between that actually makes that weapon effective. And the only way to make sure you're as effective as possible is to take good quality training from professionals like Frank and his cadre of instructors at Fortress Defense, Dot com. Check them out today. Next up, do consider joining the Member Support Brigade. You do that, you help support this show at a whopping 18.3 cents an episode and Military Law Enforcement Peace Corps, Active Duty or Prior Service, and First Responders like EMTs, Paramedics, and Firefighters. All of you do qualify for a discount. Just email me, jack, at podcastcom Service discount in the subject line, one or two sentences telling me about your service, who you are and what you're doing, or who you are and what you did if you're prior service. Do that before, not after you join my support. Brigade, I will respond back to you with a discount code to save you even more money on an already great product. Uh, With that, let us get into the year that was the episode. The episode is 1443, so the episode or the uh, year we're going to talk about is 1443. I have two for you Black Death, The English Quarantine Finally, and The Hero of Hungary. Uh, let's start. Let's do the Black Death today, especially since we did a show on pandemics yesterday and Ebola. The Black Death hit England in 1348, but it isn't until this year that Parliament passes a quarantine law to fight the Black Death. From the beginning, people have been isolating themselves from the sick, but now government has taken the responsibility to isolate the sick. Italian port cities have always had active quarantine procedures for a long time now with mixed results depending on how the quarantine is run. Locking up a dying family member with his family is reminiscent of the pharaoh being buried with his servants. There were always a few servants who ran away. Exposed family members who run away will spread the disease more quickly, so a balance needs to be struck. My take by Alex Shrugged that puts these together for us. In 1900, San Francisco initiated a panic quarantine. To stop an outbreak of bubonic plague after delaying for two months, hoping upon hope it would go away, but when the number of cases suddenly shot up, they went overboard, focusing on Asians, causing all sorts of resentment in the Chinatown community. Click the link below for details on what they did and what went right and wrong. I don't think we think of the plague, a bubonic plague, as being something going on you know 114 years ago. We think of it as the Middle Ages, but here we had it in 1900 in San Francisco. Uh, Alex goes on to say, if the U.S. were to Major pandemic right now, we are not prepared to hold a large number of exposed in quarantine. A good person would not want to go home to expose his entire family. What is he supposed to do? Camp out. Maybe having an exposed tent in the backyard might work for one's family has not been exposed. Private citizens could organize quarantine themselves, paying for a warehouse space partitioning it, setting out cots, and sending out for pizza. Anyone who develops a fever can pack their cot and move from exposed to possibly infected area. Anyone who becomes obviously sick can be shipped off to the hospital. I guess that's what you'd have to do on some levels. I I think that... You, the, the the concept that we would do this as an organized level at the citizenry level might not really work. Uh, it might end up being overflow for the sick that would have to work that way, that the hospitals couldn't handle. You take the sickest people to the hospital, you take the moderately sick, and you isolate them from the healthy. Because um, I don't know how I feel if I've been exposed about going to a warehouse with a bunch of other people that have been exposed uh, when I'm not showing any symptoms yet. Uh, I'd prefer to stay alone, thank you. Because odds are I'm not sick and I'm not going to get sick, especially if it's something like Ebola like we talked about yesterday. But if I'm standing around with a bunch of people that have been exposed, it's very likely that I could go from exposed to infected. So, yeah. In fact, we did have somewhat of this plan when we were in Arkansas if there was a pandemic. We had an RV up there. And if we had any family members that felt they needed to come up and stay with us, it's like, see that RV out there? You guys stay way out there. And if you've been here for long enough that we know you're not sick and you not get sick on your way up here, then you can come in the house. And having that type of an isolation capability on your own property may be highly advantageous. Again, from my show on Ebola yesterday, you could tell that I don't think Ebola is the one you really need to worry about because of how Ebola works and what it does do and what it doesn't do. But the potential for uh, disease, pandemic, or epidemic is always there. It's always there, and it's always there, and it is something to think about. Uh, with that, we do have the housekeeping wrapped up today. I want to remind you guys, I am in West Virginia starting today and I will not be back until Tuesday, at least not back on the air with you guys again until Tuesday. So you'll have to do without TSP on Thursday, Friday, and Monday. But uh, I will try to make it up to you by coming back with some really awesome, energized stuff after being up there with you, with a bunch of you guys for a week and being on the farm and, and what have you. Um, I do want to remind you again uh, that I am running my workshop uh, in November, and uh, you can still sign up for that, I think. There were six uh, spots left uh, last I checked, but, uh, again, this show is airing tomorrow for me, so I don't know if that's going to be the case or not. I also want to remind you guys about Forward. Uh, I'm trying to let as many you get on the list before as possible before I start giving away some insider information about it. Uh, but maybe I'll do a blog post or something to go out on Friday to encourage that. Uh, but if you go to GenForward.com, you can see something new that I'm working on, at least the inklings of it. Uh, with that, I do have the housekeeping wrapped up, and let's go ahead and introduce our special guest. Our special guest today has been on the show before. His name is Jeff Yago. He's an author best known, I think, for his work in Backwoods Home magazine, among other places. He's a great guy. He's here to talk to us about uh, vulnerabilities in the electrical grid today. And with that, hey, Jeff, man, welcome back to the Survival Podcast. And thank
1: you for having me.
0: I'm a, I'm a big fan of yours, man. I read a lot of your writing. You, you write for Backwoods Home, who, of course, is a... Uh, a supporter of our show. I've also seen you write in things like Mother Earth News, Home Power, Energy User News, and and you've been around a long time because you know what you're talking about. Uh, But there are people that probably didn't hear the first interview we did and and don't know anything about you. So my first question to every guest is, you know, uh, what are you doing now and how did you end up here? I find that most of the people that we have on this show you know didn't grow up dreaming of being an electrical engineer or something like that who climb a, a, a wonky path so could you just to connect with the audience a little bit give us a little bit of your story and how you got into what you're doing today
1: well certainly um since i was a, a really small child i was always i was the one taking things apart and trying to put them back together again and um I, at an early age i was lucky enough to find a number of of uh, people in my town that that were operating shops and and um, places that would let me come in and and use some of their tools and equipment, which was amazing today <laughs> yeah I would walk in and, and let me operate a lathe or something I was maybe ten so uh that's really uh um, you know a shame that today's kids don't have those opportunities that I did but uh, I think for me it was just the um a natural interest in, in how things work, and and the ability to have mentors, um, multiple mentors, as, as I was going to, uh, growing up. That um, I grew up in Texas, and um, would, would allow me uh, all of these opportunities to to learn, and certainly by mistakes and and uh, and, and the hard way. But um, I, I kind of started that way. I, I can't really. Say that there was one instance that was pretty much a, as long as I can remember i was I was doing things like that
0: very cool, and um, we have you on to talk about the electrical grid today uh, overall grid in the United States and some of the vulnerabilities that you're concerned about uh, we didn't really get into that the last time you were on the air. has a lot changed if so, what has
1: um, I think probably for me the two things that have changed or maybe three things is there's, there's I see more risk now than I did. Um I think we were together about maybe 2 years ago but um I certainly see I'm seeing more risk and we can go into that more detail in a little bit. Um I know that there's been a lot of of, of really really good congressional studies and investigations especially since probably 2008, um, which we can discuss also. But, but, I mean, these are really in-depth, amazingly accurate studies, um, but yet uh, I have seen no real um, results of these studies. In other words, they, um, the, the government has, has implemented studies of the subject, and, and these studies have identified the risk and the vulnerabilities, as suggested legislation. Uh, a number of, of bills have been proposed over the past three or four Congresses, and pretty much they all died or are stuck in a some type of a, um, a subcommittee. So I can't really say, as a result of, of all the concerns and the studies that identified the concerns, there really doesn't seem to be any real effort uh, both at the industry level and at the government level to to do anything i mean it's just pretty much um, you know wait until some drastic thing happens and then everybody points fingers at each other and then tries to straighten the mess out. So those are my my big concerns right now.
0: Now, when people are usually concerned about this, the the doomsday prepper crowd always leans toward the EMP attack. That's really not what you're most concerned with here. Um, And I'd like to hear maybe you talk about how something like this can can, uh, make the case for the, the types of things we're talking about today. A few years ago, it might have been two years, three years ago, I don't remember exactly when, but I'm sure in your world you would have been aware of this. There was a guy, a technician that did some work in some remote electrical station in the New Mexico desert or the Arizona desert, and it ended up shutting down power to 600,000 people in Southern California, and technically he didn't even do anything wrong, and it took him a while to figure out how to fix that. So. That's an example of there was no malice of intent by anybody, and we didn't have a natural disaster. This was just like basically a a techno fart that that, that shut down that piece of of the infrastructure. So how does that type of vulnerability get, let's say, lend to the, the, the possibility that someone might, let's say, hack into the grid and cause shutdowns or something like that?
1: Well, they're certainly related. Um, first of all, uh, for anyone who would feel like an EMP attack or uh, or some type of, of um, uh, solar flare.
0: CME uh, or something like that, something right? Something
1: like that that could cause similar uh, problems. Um, even if they feel like that's a remote possibility, the the preparations that you would do to secure the grid, Against an EMP tack, whether it's intentional or, or natural caused, are pretty much identical to the things you would do um, to help prevent some of these other non uh, um, EMP type um, possibilities that can happen. Um, most of this relates to controls, and, and uh, the article I just did for Backwards Home last month, I believe it was. Um, that was my big concern is is um, every, is everything today is so interconnected and it's convenient and uh, we certainly enjoy being able to use cell phones to turn things on and off and and um, be able to communicate with everybody at, instantly, but the problem is of course, at the industrial level, um, all of this interconnection helps things work smoothly, but what happens when that communication is is broken or overridden? And, and that's where um, the, the equipment and the controls that can be damaged by, say, an EMP attack uh, are the same controls and systems that can be damaged by um, a virus, a software attack, or, um, you know, uh, that type of a... Um, a concern. So, so they're related, but they're 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 not the same thing, and of course, would have different levels of of uh, probability.
0: I, I guess I mean my point is that there there are clearly weak points in the grid, or something like a guy swapping out a part wouldn't shut down uh, over a half million customers. And at the same time, no one knows what happened for a couple. It, like, it took two days for them to sort that out. And if those vulnerabilities exist from let's say uh, a service activity, they certainly would exist from any of these other activities correct
1: well they would and, and I guess uh, the, probably a, a more important question at this point as we move forward is who controls the, the, this, the grid and, and who, who determines the you know what level of security they need to have and um, I guess the short answer is um, the uh, utility themselves are kind of policing themselves. There's, um, uh, the bottom line is each individual u- utility grid operator is responsible for their own uh, security. Um, there is a, um, a several national oversight groups. Um, there's the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission, and there's the North American Energy Reliability Company, which is um, basically um, it's like a trade group, and together um, they promote and implement different uh, regulations that across the entire grid in the United States, which is divided up into ten separate market divisions. But um, they are they're 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 kind of like um, although they can certainly. Um, implement civil penalties. They're basically more of a advisory type of an operation and regulation, um, not so much like a police action. Um, So a lot of this is left up to the individual grid operators, and um, this is some of the legislation that has not been passed yet. Um, There are concerns when utilities start talking to each other um, there's a risk of them being accused of trying to set prices or you know a, a monopoly control of the of the marketplace and so right now there's there's a a high risk for these guys to talk to each other so one grid operator might identify a particular um, you know vulnerability, but he's you know, at risk if he tries to pass this on to a to The hundreds and hundreds of other grid operators out there. So um, there's just a, a a lot of this kind of do your own thing as best you can, and and not anybody um, kind of looking at the overall um, vulnerability other than these studies. And again, the studies have not resulted in any type of real. Uh, hard uh, legislation and regulation. So.
0: Can, can you help the person that's, let's call them partially informed, like me, uh, understand where we come up with this number of hundreds of operators. I've always understood that there's three main interconnections. There's the ERCOT, which is basically Texas down here. There's the Western and there's the Eastern. And the, the Texas piece and the Western piece are pretty much one big old honking thing and then there's, like, the FRCC down in Florida, the SERC in the southeastern United States, the RFC, things like that. So there's, like, this, like, republic of electrical conglomerates over in the eastern interconnection. Right. It's still only, like, a half dozen, and you just use the number hundreds. So I'm a little bit lost, and I'm sure some of the audience is, because I would have thought that I was pretty informed knowing that.
1: All right. Um, the – what you just described, the three parts, is actually uh, – and briefly called the Western Interconnect, the Eastern Interconnect, and the Texas. Texas, as is, is you're right, is by itself. Um, and the Eastern Interconnect has about six regulators within it. So um, that totals ten kind of sub-regulating groups, a total of ten grid markets. Within okay. that marketplace... There's literally thousands of generating facilities, and ah. it's hard to come up with a number because people define it differently. For example, um, when they refer to say six thousand generators, uh, many times they're including everything from solar uh, solar plants and wind farms, where somebody else might come up with say two or three thousand, and they're only counting say coal-fired and nuclear plants. So there's, but there's thousands of of people that are generating power, and they, uh, in many cases, they're operating their own utility lines and power lines, and they're not connected um, in many cases. So, for example, there's not a wire running from the east coast to the west coast. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's, it's, this is all broken up, and as I said, into these ten. Uh, separate uh, market groups, which you identified correctly as being in three divisions, and the, uh, the East Coast division is the one that's divided up in many separate parts. But um, you know, in the Texas, a singer by itself. But that is the um, uh, the division of it as far as a market division. But the actual number is you know thousands.
0: And and can, uh, let's say, a problem in Texas actually create a problem in Nevada, or since there are two different interconnections, is there at least that level of isolation? You'd have to get to one or the other. You couldn't get to one through the other. Or could you actually cause a problem for the western interconnection or the eastern interconnection from from ERCOT down here in Texas?
1: Um, I guess it might be possible, but using Texas as an example, it's still pretty much its own guy. Uh, A more common thing would be, for example, some of the recent power outages that have cascaded through the eastern part of the country. Um, You know, we've had uh, a number of cases in the past uh, few years of of a tree hitting a power line in in Ohio or, you know, then uh, cascading and taking out, you know, eight or nine million (laughs) homes of power for for days, so... um,
0: the well, I remember seeing it many years ago, I guess 8, 9 years ago. I was in the middle of Manhattan and the whole damn island went off and it was something that happened up by Niagara Falls if I remember right. And fortunately, I had cash on me cuz I had a beer and watched about a million people walk across the bridge.
1: That that's right. And um, um there's been um, you know, many cases where where a large um, I'm not going to mention name, but I have a a client in in New York and um you know, they they have a, a large shopping center that is totally generator powered, and uh, when that when that happened, they were ordered to shut down because it was like a moth to the flame. Um, oh. know, the whole island and area was dark, and here's this one large uh, facility with restaurants and stores and things, and it was causing massive uh, traffic jams, and the the police made them shut down. So. Uh, <laughs> that's an example that's of even little having little emergency difference. power, not such a good yeah. idea.
0: That's a little bit of an inverse uh, problem, something you wouldn't expect, but it makes sense. It it reminds me of, uh, I watched this show with, uh, what the, guy, the guy's name? Is. He's a big fat bald guy, uh, Andrew Zimmer,
1: mm-hmm.
0: Bazaar Foods guy. He goes all over the world. And they, they uh, were in Africa somewhere, and there was a lot of hungry people there at some bazaar that they were trying these weird foods at. And they decided they would just buy all the food at this one uh, stand, and they would just say anybody that wanted a meal get in line and, and get food. And it almost caused a riot.
1: Yeah.
0: Right. So that's, that's like you got to think about that too with your your you know if your standalone power that you can be an attraction to people maybe you don't want to attract. In this case, the whole city.
1: Oh, I know. I've got lots of clients with generators, and one of the things they have is blackout curtains. Mm. <laughs> Especially those in rural areas, you know, they, they don't want people to know they have power. So
0: um. sure. So, what type of risks are there right now? Have there have there been any credible attacks on the grid? Uh, do we know where they came from? What what are our greatest risks right now to somebody intentionally, or let's say also potentially internally from incompetence to causing a major catastrophic failure?
1: Well, certainly over the years there's been a number then, but I'm gonna just, just cite only the most recent ones since that will probably strike home a little bit better. Um, I've kinda of divided them into two groups. Of course, there's the physical attacks recently and the, and the viruses, software type attacks. Uh, but just in the past year, for example, uh, you know, i I mentioned in the article that in, um uh, in California, Metcalf, California, there was a substation there That was attacked and shot up, um, and uh, taken out of commission. Now, um, you know this happened in April a year ago, and there was very little in the news about this. You know, it was just you know a vandal strike (laughs) substation. Well, it's not something you want to
0: publicize, really. I mean,
1: but they implied it was just a minor thing. Yeah. And in in the past couple of months, it's just come to light what really happened there. What really happened was, um, number one, the substation is kind of in a remote area, which is fairly typical. It did have a high security fence around it, and it did have video cameras, or I mean security cameras. But in the middle of the night, uh, what these guys came in, they don't know how many, but certainly more than one. Um, They accessed a, 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 a hatch to underground communications cable running between towns, that was right next to the substation, which the substation was also connected with, and they cut the fiber optic cable first. Hmm. This, of course, took out all the alarms and you know security and and 911 um, and everything to the community, but also uh, made it delay for anybody to know what was going on at the substation. Remember, all this is happening in the dead of night. It was pitch dark. Um, so then these guys uh, kind of uh, apparently surrounded the substation in several positions who knew where the cameras were, were aimed because even though there was multiple cameras, nobody was ever visible in the security footage. So they had uh, also knew what to shoot at. They were not just blasting away. They carefully shot out... The oil lines, all the, the oil cooling um, uh, reservoirs on these large transformers, and the purpose was not to blow them up—you know, cause this big fireball and everybody comes running from the other towns—but it caused them to start leaking oil out fairly quickly. Yeah, and it's like yeah. it would be like a radiator leak in a car going down the highway at seventy miles an hour. Pretty soon, something's going to happen. So they did this. Um, it gave them plenty of time to get away, and of course, once the wall drained out the all these transformers overheated and basically had a meltdown well Of course, they found over a hundred shell casings, and uh, none of them had fingerprints on them, so this was all called to be local vandals that did this.
0: This was very sophisticated, yet relatively low-tech, and that should be the frightening part. This didn't require some genius Asian hacker to develop a virus and install it. This was very mechanical in nature. It's something that anybody could do, but you had to be smart to do it and, and not get caught. So did they ever catch these guys?
1: Um, not. To, no, they did not. Uh. Now, that was in April of last year. In August of last year, in Arkansas, um, somebody cut the bolts on a, a, a tower holding up a 500,000-volt power line. And, uh, of course, it, they, they cut all but just a couple of bolts remaining, just one or two, to barely hold it together so they could escape. And it only, I don't know how long after that, but I'm sure it only took maybe a little wind and it uh, toppled the tower, went across a train line. The train came along and severed the, the high voltage power lines, which had probably already shorted out. But um, anyway, that, to my knowledge, has not been reported out in the regular news. Um, then here in June of this year, in Arkansas, a, uh, apparently a disgruntled guy had uh, gone on the warpath, and he had uh, he or they, somebody, and made a homemade bomb that they had placed um, beside a 50,000-gallon uh, tank, fuel tank, at a power station. Not too long after that, they uh, cut down a power line. And, uh, and and then later, there was uh, some shooters spotted at a substation, but were not, they were not identified and did not actually cause any damage. They were just visible in security. And that's just in the past year. A uh, physical type attacks now, and um, the thing i 'm most concerned about is the um, the viruses that are out there that uh, some of them have been of course uh, created by us against other countries, but <laughs> other countries are also starting to do the same thing to us um, for example, I mentioned in the article this um, this um, software virus that was um, uh generated by uh, supposedly the United States and and um the Israel together uh, that in 2010 hit Iran's nuclear uh centrifuges uh, basically these are just um you know spinning uh, machine driven uh, spinning tanks that help diffuse or separate out the the um the gas that's used to to make the um the nuclear fuel. It's just, and it just, you know, they spin day and night, 24 hours a day. They sit there just spinning and there's thousands of them. So, you know, the gas comes in at one and it gets spinned out to where it becomes a little bit more concentrated and it's moved to the next group and they get spinned down again. So it's just, for you know, for, for months and months and months it's just spinning <laughs> um, cylinders that are motor driven. But, um, this virus was created on the internet and it was, it was designed specifically to attack the controls that were specifically made for those centrifuges. So when it went out into the internet and went all over the world, it didn't hurt anything. You know, it wasn't mm-hmm. tearing up computers all over the place. It just literally finally found its way into Iran and into the Iran's nuclear uh, industry's computers, and then from there it stubbed down into their control of centrifuges and basically it's just a simple virus that caused these things to to erratically uh, alter their speeds and they pretty much self-destructed so um, you know they lost you know thousands of these centrifuges from just simply from their speed controls being overridden by a software virus um, fairly um, sophisticated yet specifically designed for one type of of equipment um, then in the that was in 2010 in 2012 there was a, a you know, virus called flame and that was that attacked uh, Iran's oil industry and uh, also hit Sudan Syria Egypt Saudi Arabia I believe Lebanon and um, the interesting thing about this uh, virus is that um, it could uh, log people's keystrokes. It could activate the cameras and the microphones in these um, in different power stations and places and it was undetected for over five years. Um, in two thousand twelve there's a virus called called Shamoon, and they believe that was created by Iran as a counter virus uh, back against Saudi Arabia. This is when Um, Iran's oil industry was under embargo, but Saudi Arabia is pumping oil like crazy, so um, supposedly Iran created this virus, and it hit uh, Saudi Arabia's oil industry, and it erased the data on three-fourths of all their computer systems. (laughs) There were like 30,000 computers. I mean, that's their spreadsheets, their data, their everything, all of it was, was wiped out. And Remember, these things can happen to us, too. It can be, certainly be reversed. Um, uh, most recently, this year, they have a kind of a general, generic uh, one called Energetic Bear. But this is an umbrella list of the attacks they think is coming from Russia against against us and against uh, our oil refineries and pipelines and power grids and things. And this is something I discussed in my article that, You know the SCADA controls are very vulnerable to these types of viruses.
0: Do you think that maybe some of this, the way people need to look at it is, like you said the one was there for five years and no one knew it, it's not necessarily let's say in Russia or China's best interest right now to really jack up our systems. It is in their best interest to have the ability to do so if necessary from their viewpoint at some time in the future in that a lot of these things may be like that we find kind of a like well we'll let them find this to see what they do, and there may be many other things that are just lurking that both sides have on each other that they're just unknown right now
1: well, when they had this uh, most recent uh, congressional study I mentioned earlier that was in two thousand thirteen um, where the they invited in the um the major utilities to come in, and there was about a hundred and I think around 180 that responded to the specific questions. But um, several of them basically said that they're under daily constant cyber attacks. I mean, every day. One of them was reporting over 10,000 cyber attacks per month. This is on one utility. Um, And they all admitted that they felt like that probably there's um, dormant software Things that are sitting there waiting for some type of command. So um, that's again my concern is, and and these um, viruses that have been that have been found, many of them have been operational for years before they were found. So uh, I think you're right. I think a lot of these um, a a lot of this hacking that's happening towards us are in an effort to just identify where all of the control systems are, how they're interconnected, and what they do, and then they introduce some type of software patch or hack that is not operational yet. It's just sitting there waiting for a command or a backdoor, you know, turn-on. And when it is commanded, you're talking about the ability to shut down the grid, you know, to screw up, uh, you know, Gas lines, pipelines, uh, you know, uh, the pumping stations, uh, gates on flood, floodgates on dams. Um, I mean, all of these systems today are controlled by the same type of software. It, it's a very reliable, very redundant, very rugged industrial control system called SCADA, and it's used everywhere. It's used. Um, you know they use it in automobile plants to control assembly lines they use it to control your utility grids they use it to control uh, the the oil and gas flowing through these thousand mile long pipelines it's all controlled by scada and the, the problem with scada is one because it's so robust it's not like something you have to you know upgrade every 6 months it's, some of these things have been running for 10 15 years totally unattended and doing just fine but they were, they were created at a time where hacking and, and vulnerability from you know networking issues didn't exist. So they're, they're like children. You know, they're doing what they're instructed to do, but they don't know to, how to protect themselves, and, and the systems are not designed to protect themselves. So um, what the industries have tried to do they say, all right, well, we understand that. We we know that's a problem, so we're going to put all the computers over here on this side of the room that control our our processes, and over on this side of the room, we're going to put all the computers that do such things as uh, our bookkeeping and accounting and Internet and email and all that. It's supposed to be like an air gap between them. But what they found out later was most of them share the same printers and the same, uh, you know, uh, Bluetooth things and and those gaps no longer really exist. So they know there's been a lot of breaches there. They just they can't identify them.
0: I mean, so what do you think people should be doing to protect themselves? Then, because it sounds like there are some things that are somewhat, at least for the time being, insurmountable as far as risk goes.
1: Well, I think I think in my mind it's inevitable. You know, I, th- I think this this is just waiting for the other shoe to fall. I, I think, you know, I mean, there's a lot of smart people out there that have have completed these studies, and and they believe me, they kn- they haven't just studied this. Many of these studies included testing, where they've actually created you know EMP simulators and and um, and all kinds of, of hacking tests, and so they really do know. The the vulnerability. They really know what's going to happen, and nothing has been done. You know, there hasn't been any real uh, efforts to try to to resolve these things. And of course, you know the industries are reluctant to spend the money. Um, uh, we talked about the transformers being shot up. Those transformers sometimes take a year to reorder. Um, you know, it's not something you go down in the local hardware to buy some of these things are as big as a house and you know they have to be some of them are made in germany and are are imported and can take over a year to order and bring in so um you you have those concerns you have concerns that they uh, a lot of these guys say well we'll share or share the risk so you know four or five utilities are uh, have their dibs on one transformer but they're not thinking that when this happens, you know, they're all five are going to be trying to be, trying to borrow the same transformer that's sitting there in the stockyard. So, um, I think it's inevitable that we're going to have some really significant uh utility grid problems in the future. I mean, we have uh, the grid is is aging. All of that equipment is is getting older, and um, a lot of it has been delayed on the on replacement, especially our transmission lines, um, going, you know, because it's so hard to access.
0: There uh, is an aging problem. I mean, I heard about some uh, uh, transformers in L.A. that were under the ground, and eventually they just decided to leave them running, case them up, and hope that nothing goes wrong, because they looked at it, and they don't even know what to do with these things. They're so old now.
1: (laughs) Well, you know, it's funny, but... um, A lot of people say, well, we need to put all this underground. That way we won't have as much storm damage from, you know, down power lines. Well, you know, Con Edison is about something like 85% underground now. I mean, they've got thousands of miles of wire underground. And yet, look at what Hurricane Sandy did. You know, all of those underground transformer vaults, you know, filled up with water and, uh, you know, salt water and, and um transformers are blowing up all over the place. Uh, So being underground doesn't help, Um, but there is, um, you know, I just feel like that the vulnerability is is certainly going to mean we're going to see more power outages in the future, not less. Um, You know, the EPA has shut down a lot of power uh, power plants. We're seeing uh, more demand for power and fewer power plants. Uh, People are wondering why their electric bills are starting to go up. Well, it's, you know, this is one reason why we're we're shutting down. There's been 175 coal-fired plants shut down since Obama took office. And that's going to have an impact, especially if we have another severe, you know, cold spell or or very hot summer. Um, It's going to mean, you know, possible outages, brownouts, higher costs. So you know your question of well, what do we do? Um, I think the first thing is to recognize that the the potential for a problem is greater than we think it is. Whether it's EMP or aging equipment or or hacking or you know regulations or whatever, there's a, a whole list of of concerns that's going to impact the grid in the next few years that that's going to make it worse before it gets better. So I think we first have to identify that or, or recognize that, yes, this is a, 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 a real concern. And then the second thing, is, as you mentioned, is, well, what can an individual person do? And I think my my whole emphasis here is to let people understand that owning a generator is a real false sense of security. I mean i have a whole house generator i have an addition to that i have a portable generator in addition to that i have a small generator for my rv camper sometimes so i certainly own generators but the difference is i only look at them as a very temporary stopgap measure in other words you know if you have a generator odds are you have less than one week's supply of fuel and uh, of course up until now, most of the power allergies have only been, you know, a day or two and, you know, maybe three days at the most, so especially if it's from a, a hurricane or something like that. And so most people feel like, oh, I'll go down at Lowe's and buy one of those $400 generators and, and I'm good. Um, of course, uh, many of the people buying generators, uh, a lot of them do not understand they have to be maintained. You know, what they do is they buy it, uh, during a storm or right after a storm, and then it's going to sit in the garage for a year or two until the next storm. And they're going to go out there and expect to pour some old gasoline in it. And, you know, if, or maybe it still has some old gasoline in it from the last time they used it. And, and, you know, they don't run. And, uh, so, you know, when you have a generator, you've got a member of the family. I mean, you've got something that has to be, uh, tested regularly and run in every, every few, uh, months. And, and uh, fuel has to be fresh and, and um, you know, it has to be constantly maintained or it will not come on or start when you really need it. So
0: Let me just say something to back that up. So a few years ago, we were living in Arkansas before we moved back to Texas, and we had a major uh, a snowstorm followed by a major ice storm. We had like two inches of wet snow and then like four inches of ice on top of it in uh, shallow rooted pine trees went down all over the place and took out electrical lines all over the place and the city was mostly without power for about five six weeks or five or six days not weeks and when we you know people finally started to get out and all my, my wife and I went to uh, a cracker barrel and we had, had our generator in our fireplace and everything we really didn't care about this other than it was a little inconvenient uh, in fact, it was during Christmas, and we had Christmas dinner, and the tree lights were on. So, I mean, we we did pretty well with it. But we decided, hell, we'll we'll go to uh, Cracker Barrel, and of course, it's a small kind of country atmosphere in there, even though it's a big restaurant. So you could hear what everybody was talking about. I heard at least four people that were number one there because that power came on at that restaurant. It was warm there, and two had generators that weren't working, uh, dry rotted gas lines, gummed up, wouldn't start, that type of thing. So that was just like, you know, like usually you hear people talking about it, the, the football game on Saturday. That was like the, the topic de jour in that restaurant was we're here because it's warm and our generator doesn't work.
1: Well, that's not uncommon. And also it's, of course, the uh, midnight auto that strikes a lot of these generators running all night long in somebody's garage with the door open so it doesn't gas them and uh, all of a sudden it quits, there's no noise, and the guy wakes up and goes out there, and the generator is gone. So when you're in a, a quiet city because all the power's out, you can hear a generator running three blocks away, and <laughs> you better have that thing chained down pretty good or it's going to disappear. So, that's, But, um you know, the, especially the folks that have whole house generators. I mean, it's so convenient on one hand. They think, well, you know, this thing is advertised. The second the power goes out, It switches over and starts running. Well, you know, what if the power went out in the middle of the day and there's nothing in the house running? You're off to work, and other than maybe electric clock on the stove turning, there's there's not really, you know, the refrigerator cycled off, so there isn't really anything in the house needing electricity, yet the generator came on because the power went out. So you're sitting there consuming fuel, and, you know, the people who think, well, there's no loads. So it's not really using much fuel. That's not right because the fuel consumption on generators not linear. It's not a straight line. It's it's more like our old hockey stick thing about the global warming. I mean, it, it goes up really, really quickly. So, um, for example, it, a generator 50% loaded is not using 50% of its fuel. It's using a lot more than that. Uh, but you take these whole house generators, you know, especially the ones for propane. Um, um, I think today most whole house generators are they're installing around twelve to fifteen kilowatts, that's kind of an average size range. Well those things use uh between two and a half and three gallons of propane an hour. Well if you've ever seen one of these big hundred pound propane cylinders, you know, which is about probably come up to your shoulders, those only hold twenty three gallons of propane. So you got maybe, you know, Ten hours of (laughs) runtime. Then what are you going to do? Now you know people say, "Well, you know, I've got this 500-gallon underground tank." Well, fine, but you know, first of all, um, you know, you're not going to get 500 gallons of propane out of a 500-gallon propane tank. It it has to, you know, become gaseous, and and there always has to be some left in there. So, but let's say 400 gallons of usable propane. Well, if you're if you're sucking down you know, three or four gallons an hour of propane, and your generator controls are designed to come on as soon as the power is out and stay on until the power comes back on. What, what? How many gallons are you using a day? 24 hours a day. I mean, if I know many people here around me that uh, have generators, and the last week-long power outage we had, it sucked their tanks dry. I mean, they went through 500-gallon tank of propane in a week. Uh, because they let their generator run 24 hours a day. Yes, it was convenient, but, you know, it, it's extremely expensive and it's very wasteful. So, And then what do you do when the tank's empty? What if the power outage is two weeks long or three weeks long? Uh, what if you have your, you know, you drug out your little hand crank uh, contractor generator and have it in the garage and you run some extension cords to it? So maybe it's only using, you know, a gallon an hour. Well, mm-hmm. what do you do when that, you know, five- or six-gallon tank is empty? I mean, if you have no power where you live, you can bet the local gas station is not going to have any power either. So, you know, what do you do? And if uh, you don't have power because of a storm, you know, ice storm or, or hurricane or down trees or whatever, um you know, you're not just going to jump in the car and run down to the local gas station and get a couple of cans of gasoline filled up. So, again, I think I certainly am for having a generator for a power outage that lasts a couple of days. But I'm trying to make people aware of then what? What do you do next? And I'm think I'm saying that what do you do next? next is going to happen a lot more often in the future, than it has in the past. So these guys are saying, well, I'm not worried about it because we've never had a power outage here lasting longer than a week or whatever. I'm saying, good for you, but I think you're going to find out that's not what's in your future.
0: Yeah, I I do have to say, though, I I think that my owning of uh, small generators has been the best prep that we've made. So you're not opposed to generators altogether. You like you've said you've owned them, but they have to be maintained, and they only do so much.
1: Yeah. Again, I own three generators of all you know, from twelve kilowatt to five kilowatt to one kilowatt. So, so, uh, believe me, I, I use them a lot, and I'm not opposed to owning one. But I'm just saying, the guy who owns a generator, as long as in his mind, his prepping plans are, what are my Plans, what do I do in five days when this thing is run out of fuel and I may not be able to get fuel? Now, if he has a game plan for that, great. But the guys that just have a generator, period, and may or may not have even a week's worth of fuel, um, I'm saying you're sitting there with a very false sense of security. And uh, you may even be hurt worse than the other guy, because the other guy who lost power immediately the last five days has been making adjustments to his lifestyle, and uh, you're all of a sudden running at a normal lifestyle that's going to end. Hmm. so um, i'm I'm just trying to to make people aware of two things: generators are great, but they're very much short term, and two, you may have enjoyed fairly reliable electrical power in the in the past, but with all of these things that are starting to happen out there, I think you're going to be very lucky if you're not going to be, be seeing a lot more outages, and they're going to last a lot longer than they have in the past.
0: So how would you address this concern uh, differently for people in the south versus the north? So for instance, in the north, putting together just a full off-grid uh, home is expensive and it, it takes some work, but it's it's not that difficult. Because what I've always said is it's easier to create heat than cool. People like me that live in Texas, we routinely have days of 105, 106 degrees. Really, the only way that I can even cool a room to keep one room comfortable is through the use of a portable generator. I know you can build earth contact housing and things like that, but most people, let's face it, they have to work with the home they have. So, how, how would you address that differently based on where a person lives?
1: Well, well, I'm certainly aware of it. I'm, I now live in Virginia, and of course... Um, you get central both. Central Virginia, The <laughs> well, we have these, uh, these summers that it's not just hot. It's hot and extremely humid. Um, and not having uh, an air conditioner would be a killer. Um, so when you know I designed our home which is semi- solar powered I mean it, it's pretty much solar but not air conditioning. As you pointed out, air conditioning is a big big load. I have a um, I have a whole house generator that runs everything if the solar powered batteries get low and there's a power outage. but I have a very small through the wall, window type air conditioner, it's a window type I've built into the wall of our master bedroom bath, and that section of the house can be totally thermally isolated from the rest of the house, so, you know, during a power outage where we, we don't want to run the whole house generator and maybe the solar system isn't keeping up with the load, you know, we can operate this very small uh, little generator and at least sleep comfortably at night while it's the rest of the house is 100 degrees and it's 105 outside. But, uh, you know, there are certainly, um, in the northern climates, uh, where you don't need air conditioning, you don't need dehumidification, and you can use, uh, you know, alternate fuels for heating, then probably your primary uh, needs are going to be to power uh, a TV or radio and a few lights and, and uh probably that's about it. Um of course in the south we're either we're gonna have to at a minimum probably gonna be running some ceiling fans which don't use a lot of power, but um um it'd be rare that you're gonna be running an air conditioner off the solar system. So uh it's gonna be tough. Uh, and and <laughs> um, you know, I guess it's nice if you have a multi story house where you can Move your bed down in the basement for a couple of weeks. It might be the solution.
0: Yeah, except we don't have basements in Texas either. I mean, my approach has been pretty much what yours is. We use portable generators, and we have multiple, and we store a lot of fuel. That That's one thing that helps us a lot. But we what we have are very highly efficient uh, portable air conditioners, and we'll take a room during a, an extended outage and make that like the comfort room. So it might be our bedroom and my, and in some instances it may be my office so I get my work done without pouring sweat. And we'll, we'll confine the majority of our indoor activity to that area. And you can do that with a hell of a lot less fuel than trying to cool a 2,500 square foot house. Absolutely. And, and that's, um, that's the only approach we've been able to take that, that's made sense and worked.
1: Well, that, that's true, and, and that's what I was, I was suggesting that, uh, and probably also your generator, you're not running it 24 hours a day. You're, you're probably no. not running it until you say, okay, we're going to, starting at 5 o'clock in the evening, we're going to start preparing meals, and then having a little bit of entertainment, and then we you know, watch the TV or listen to the radio, maybe read a little bit, we're going to bed. So, your generator might only be running, say, 5 or 6 hours per day. Um, So your fuel consumption is going to be a fourth of what the poor guy who's just stuck with one of these instant-on generators, which I really hate.
0: (laughs) We looked at them, and they just didn't make any sense to us. About the only place I could see that they make sense is the person that's on grid gas. Because you're going to get a big bill, but, I mean, unless the generator breaks down, it's going to run. Um, with propane, when we looked at you know, the concept of doing that with a, you know, a 500 gallon pig, it was like, it just didn't do what you expected. When we moved here, one of the first things I did was put in a propane stove and have 120 gallons of propane for the stove. That lasts a long time. Absolutely. So we have no need to draw electrical for the stove. And that, that took off a big burden. And then we have a wood stove. It's a beautiful wood stove in the center of the house. So if it happens in the winter, which is when we are weather wise more likely to be without power for extended periods for us as the winter. We'll get windstorms and things in the in the summer, but they're usually they're usually things that, you know, other you know, not understating what you've brought to us today with you know hacker threats and things like that but a windstorm in the summer here uh, t- even tornadoes and things like that usually don't take them that long once everything's cleaned up to get the power back on you get an ice storm in a city that does not have the capacity to clear roads with ice and snow and you can look at a week easy and and that's that sucks
1: <laughs> well you know um you know, I've I've been to a lot of military installations and as part of my work over the years, and some of them are extremely high security, very very sensitive places, and of course those all have generators, and some of these generators are, you might see six generators sitting side by side in a room, and each generator is the size of a boxcar. So, you know, we're talking about like two megawatt. <laughs> diesel powered generators, four or five of them sitting side by side and and that's great, but you know it takes a tractor trailer load of diesel fuel to keep those things running twenty four hours a day like like twice a week so you the ice storms you're talking about these places that we think are so critical to be backed up, their backup power is very limited to to maybe a, a week and if there's an ice storm, how, how are you going to make delivery of, you know, these ten thousand gallons of diesel fuel every couple of days? Same for your cell phone towers. All of those, you know, every cell phone tower typically has a backup generator, but they only have maybe at most two days worth of backup fuel, and so you're definitely going to use lose your um, your communications, especially the people now who. Gotten away from landlines and just relying on cell phones completely. So, um, you know, again, you put too much faith in a generator, you're gonna, you're gonna (laughs) regret it. Um, What what I like to do is I like a hybrid system, and um, it's what I have on the house, and it's what I have helped a lot of a lot of clients do, and that is, it's in two parts. The first part is non-solar. I know some of your listeners are not interested in solar. That's fine. Um, so what you do is you get a small inverter, say maybe a 1,000-watt inverter, something that doesn't take a huge amount of battery power to run, and you get a small battery bank, say maybe on the order of uh, four golf cart batteries. I'm, I'm just kind of give you an idea of size. Mm-hmm. Um, and you have a – if your inverter – uh, hopefully has a a charger section built in. A, a lot of the better ones do now. If not, you need a really really robust charger. But um, so you're in a power outage that's going to last a couple of weeks. Well, you are you fire up your generator, uh, say at at um, first thing in the morning when everybody's getting up, taking showers, you know, needing lights, needing <laughs> needing uh, you know, to run a microwave oven or something. So you fire up your generator. And while the generator is really under maximum load, running all this stuff that you're going to be running, getting ready for work or school, it's charging up this battery bank, which are now dead because they've been running all night long. And so you run the generator maybe two hours, and then you shut it off. Now, that battery bank is going to easily carry the house the rest of the day to run such things as lights. Um, occasionally, might have to fire up a microwave, um you know, garage door opener. Uh, uh, you know, just some some basic things through the day. It's not running heat or or cooling, but it's um, of course it could run a, a little circulating pump on a say a, some type of a boiler system. A lot of people use sure. outdoor wood boilers, so it could certainly run that. But this thing's going to coast all day long. Still, the house is going to apparently uh, be apparently have power. I mean, all the lights are going to work. And then the batteries are starting to get low. We hit about 5 or 6 o'clock in the evening. Again, we're still on the power outies. People come in, or if they've been out working or shoveling snow or wherever they've gone, um, you're now doing meal preparation the evening. Um, your refrigerator has stayed on, you know, because you've had this small backup system running, assuming it's not a big refrigerator. Um, and then you again start the generator up, run it about two or three hours. It's going to be running your microwave oven and the lights and the TV and the DVD player or whatever for the evening entertainment, and then, you know, get around 8 o'clock, 9 o'clock. Generator shut off. That inverter is now fully charged again, and it's able to carry you through the night. Somebody gets up in the night and needs to turn on the light to find the bathroom or whatever. You have power without running a generator. Now, that's my phase one approach, and it's fairly simple.
0: Um, you're you're banging dead on the the survival podcast way. Uh, you and Stephen Harris, I think, would be best buddies and hang out. He's one of our frequent guests here. Right now, I'm looking into my closet in my uh, my office. I have a four battery battery bank with a smart uh, charger that's pl- plugged into the grid and constantly keeps everything. Uh, topped off, and that is exactly what we do, and it's exactly what we've been teaching people to do uh, for a very long time here it, because it's so simplistic to do. Now, not everybody that puts one in has it wired into the home with some kind of bypass switch or something so that it'll just run all the outlets, but a few extension cords, and you can keep just about anything you need running and I think that actually helps you really think about something before you start drawing power with it.
1: Absolutely. And a lot of times, uh-huh. a lot of our class we've helped, um, we've, um, we've installed basically or they bought a, um, a DC refrigerator or freezer, one of the smaller ones. Mm-hmm. They're DC powered and they're connected directly to a, you, typically we use two golf cart batteries. As a as a good size. Um, I like golf cart batteries because they're cheap, and they're very rugged, and they're 100% recyclable. So anyway, you got a small refrigerator-freezer. It's DC-powered. You connect it directly to a couple of golf cart batteries, and then you hook a small trickle charger to it, plug it in. That's it. That's your wiring. And so it's basically running off the grid 24 hours a day because the trickle charger is putting into the battery whatever is being taken out by the freezer or refrigerator. But if you have a power outage, you don't have to do anything. (laughs) It's going to keep on rolling. So, uh, And, of course, the phase two would be whatever amount of solar you add to your little system that you already have in place, it's just going to reduce the number of hours you have to run the generator.
0: So Sure. And Here's another thing we, we've done. Uh, I worked with Steve, who I just mentioned, and we came up with a, a system design. This really only works well for pickup trucks. But in the back of my pickup truck, I have a, a great big diamond plate toolbox. Inside the center of that toolbox, surrounded by um, lag-bolted two-by-sixes are two GC2 golf cart batteries. Running off of that, uh, it is a, a small uh, sun force charge controller like you use for a solar system. That runs up to the front of the truck. Every time that truck runs, it tops off those batteries through a smart controller. So it, it's not going right. to mess them up. And then I also have a little sun force charge controller and a 100-watt solar panel with a pigtail. So every time that truck goes anywhere, those batteries are kept topped off. And if you have, I have to, you
1: can move them into the house if you need I to. I could
0: move them in the house, but I've got an inverter sitting right in there. I have a 2,500-watt inverter extension cord brings the power in the house. Um, and that is one of the more flexible things. If you have a little off-grid cabin to use for hunting or something like that, when you pull up, you've brought your battery bank with you. And it, it leaves with you so no one steals it while you're not there. Well, I suggest uh,
1: uh, listeners might hit the website. I've got... Probably a hundred articles of how to do what you've just described with a lot of pictures and a lot of wiring diagram very simple uh, emergency and backup power systems uh, easy to find I can just google my name um but the um I think what you have have been talking about um are you know we've 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 got the articles out there that you can read and see and as, what I try to do with my articles i try to make them very easy to understand. I don't use a lot of you know technical terms and a lot of you know get into high math and uh
0: when you say these articles are these are all on Backwoods home or do you have them on a side of your own or
1: if, just google my name and people can find them uh, they're in multiple publications but okay. that pretty much um, my, my full name is j e f f r e y y a g o um just over the years i i use my full name in writing and my jeff name just for for friends (laughs) but uh most articles are under jeffrey yego and um, very easy to find and they can they want to add a comma and say solar or comma battery backup whatever uh, otherwise they're going to get a whole lot of links but um they can refine their search and uh, as you mentioned earlier, I've written for a number of different publications and uh, and all of them, I've tried very hard to keep it simple, write uh, for somebody who can uh, build these things by going down to Lowe's or Home Depot. Um, you know, very limited requirements for sophisticated tools or or parts. And um, I use a lot of graphics, a lot of uh, wiring diagrams that are simplified to make it easy to understand. So I'm strongly suggesting as we close things out that people understand the risk uh, for power outages in their life is going to be a lot greater in the future than it has been their experience in the past.
0: Well, very cool. And uh, I appreciate you being with us today, and I'll make sure that we have links to at least I can link to all your stuff on Backwoods Home because that's all consolidated in one place. And I'll make sure that uh, uh, the name's spelled out in full so people know where to Google to find more. But you, you do a, you do, do a great job with your articles. Uh, like I said, I've been reading your stuff for a very long time, going back at least 10 years. Uh, as a longtime reader of Backwoods Home, if, if nothing else. And I uh, appreciate you being with us here today.
1: Well, thanks so much, and uh, perhaps we can do this again in the future.
0: Absolutely. You're always welcome back. Just fill out the guest form, and, uh Darth, he'll get you scheduled. And, uh, again, thanks for being here with us today. Thank you, Jack. All right, folks, and with that, it's been Jack Spierka today along with Jeff Diego, helping you figure out how to live that better life. Times get tough, or even if they don't.